You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. We would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is located on unceded indigenous lands. The Kanyankehaka Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather today. Teotihuacan, Montreal is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today, it is home to a diverse population of indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connections with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and all peoples within the Montreal community. I am your host, Olivia, and today I will be chatting with Ariel about her paper entitled Intellectual Disability and Sexual Rights. She has recently graduated from Concordia University with a specialization in sociology. She currently works as a specialized counselor and general care provider for individuals with disabilities. She's moving to France in two weeks to continue her studies by pursuing a master's degree in international relations at the University of Nantes. She will continue to be actively engaged in the legislative movement and supporting disability rights together with those communities and individuals that are negatively affected by the neglect produced by ineffectual laws. So thank you so much for joining us, Ariel. I have to say that your paper was one of the most interesting that I've read in terms of the fact that I, you know, it's the f- one of the first times that I actually read about that topic. I have to say that it was really well written and it dove into an angle that I, I really wasn't expecting and I really enjoyed it. So thank you for being with us. Can you talk a little bit about your research and the findings that came out of it? Yes. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, my work focuses on intellectual disability and the presence of systems of oppression under the guise of care when considering sexual and reproductive rights of individuals with disabilities. I discovered early on that UN charters of rights for intellectually disabled people do not adequately protect individuals in certain countries from non-consensual sterilization. I uncovered as well in my work a dehumanization process uh, that allows for freedom and autonomy to be retracted from these individuals and the assisted laws as well that define cognitive capabilities meant to help people. But in turn, they show a limited understanding of awareness, choice and autonomy of these individuals. So through an exploration of legal discourses on human rights, needs, principles and sociological theory, uh, my essay explores universalized Western concepts relating to parenting and sexuality that contribute to the dehumanization process of intellectually disabled individuals. So my main argument is that the lack of concise policy, uh, disproportionate power relations and neoliberal ideologies and economic factors act as barriers uh, for intellectually disabled individuals in achieving autonomy regarding sexual expression and parental rights. That's super interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about why you oriented yourself towards this topic in particular? Uh, Yes. Uh, So I work in a group home presently. I work in assisting people with uh, varying unique uh, needs, intellectual and and, uh, physical. So I do my best to help them empower themselves and gain independence in their own lives. Also in the process, I've encountered many situations where their agency was challenged and I keep finding new ways to support them as they navigate 
uh, ways to take back their power on all levels, including areas of sexual health, uh, choice and education. So years ago, I was working at a camp as a specialized camp counselor. And there was a couple there that I assisted during their during their time there. They were both very excited because they were going to get married. But they also expressed like their difficulties uh, that came with being given the permission to wed, seeing as they both like have Down syndrome, right? So yeah, I would lie awake many nights <laughs> uh, thinking about the legal processes and bureaucratic structures surrounding like such personal choices like marriage, right? And that decision. Uh, so I remembered thinking like, well, who is in the right authority to make these decisions, right? Or how do they gauge like whether a person is apt to marry or not? So these questions um, and my curiosity like ultimately led me to, to pick this topic for my research. That's really interesting. And I don't know about, you know, the rest of the, the people listening, but I'm going to speak for myself. And those are all questions that, you know, as an able-bodied person, I've never really stopped to ask because those things are just a given. But I think definitely after reading your paper, it's something that needs to be discussed more. If I'm not mistaken, you're in anthropology or were an anthropology student at Concordia. Can you talk a little bit about how your program influenced or, or played in your research, the role it had? Yeah, so I'm I'm in sociology. I just graduated this year. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, so in sociology, <laughs> congrats. Thank you. So in sociology, uh, we explore oppressive structures that are not always visible to a generally uh, imperceptive eye. So I really enjoyed the the critical process of of evaluating my mundane actions. <laughs> Um, and how they fit in the larger scheme of historical and um, international relations. And also the political meaning, like inherent to like various concepts of free will. I'm very like interested in philosophy. I'm drawn to it. I'm drawn to philosophical debates on agency, free will, and also the essence of choice as they relate to the structures of power present in Canadian social structures. And that's also what drew me to Michel Foucault, which I use a lot in this paper in my work. Because his work on, yeah, Michel Foucault's work on the, um, on the general topic of power dynamics, um, it inspires me to reflect on imbalance um, of resources culminating from competitive market philosophies um, that permeate legal decisions and, and hermeneutics of choice. So disability rights focuses on areas um, of education and sexual education it tends to be considered last um, when mostly non-disabled gatekeepers holding the most power discuss qualifications of consent uh, that usually reflect values not held by the individual or population under examination. Uh, so that's, you see a lot of that in Foucault's work, right? Those power dynamics, needs principles, and, and also regimes of, of care. That's really interesting. Sorry, by the way, I really thought you were in anthropology. So my bad for the listeners. Uh, Ariel is in sociology or actually just graduated sociology. I have a few other questions more specific in terms of your papers. So for those who haven't read it or would like to read it, um, it is in the Stories for Montreal 2019-2020 edition that is about to come out. But in your paper, you, you discuss and explain what you call like regime of care and needs principles. And I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that and explain that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the context of this paper, and, and also simply put, uh, a regime, regimes of care kind of act as structures uh, that can be formed on a familial, so family, <laughs> institutional or individual level. So it's 
mainly to organize methods of caring uh, for individuals with disabilities. But under that pretense of care, uh, certain choices are taken away from the one being cared for uh, to whatever form of government that has authority over them. So I use, again, like Foucauldian theory to bring into focus the dominant ideologies of guardians, of gatekeepers and what that means, um, like whether they're institutional or, or familial, uh, to explore the underlying ideologies of sexuality, marriage and reproduction that dominate the society being examined. So in the South African case expressed through Kahonde Eyalt's work, the guardians prioritize the other aspects of well-being of their charges above sexual expression and education because the families that were interested, sorry, not interested, but interviewed, did not have the resources available to support um, their charges in, in the way. And they most often had to juggle multiple jobs um, while supporting their family members um, with the disability at home under their complete care with very little help from South African governing bodies. So their prioritization of one need over another for the overall welfare of the family is direct example of Foucault's theory of needs principles, which needs principles are described also as a constructed hierarchy of needs uh, that reflect the resources and values um, of a society. And um, in your essay, you discuss human rights policies, as you mentioned before, and more specifically, the reformation of, of those human rights for the intellectually disabled. And this is a quote directly from your essay, and it's cited from an author called Little, and it states, vague language used in the universal policies for human rights of intellectually disabled individuals creates varying definitions of quote-unquote best interests that allow uh, that allows cases of non-consensual sterilization to continue worldwide. I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, so if we go to like the fundamentals of like human rights laws, right? Um, it's that there are like uh, human rights laws for procreation, right? Um, and that procreation and sexual choice, supporting procreation and sexual choice for all people, right? So it's a very general statement. So in my work, I highlight that there needs to be a more precise like reformation on an international like basis for laws that place the individual with intellectual disability at the center of care, um, of true care, not just what we what we deem as care that that depends that, that can change and that can vary like from culture to culture. There needs to be like an international understanding of care for the well-being that doesn't mirror any other. Um, any other idea of, of care or well-being uh, for the many. And also in keeping their right of choice and agency intact throughout that process, throughout that legal process. Definitely. And you mentioned it a little bit before, but can you explain a little bit about how human rights law relates particularly to your essay? So you mentioned it needs reformation. Is there anything else? So in the definition of like best interests as well, there's, there's a loss of like direct language and the stipulation of these interests and conjecture with the spoken or unspoken will of the individual and how it would allow for an assessment of interest that could more closely offer a choice for the disabled person who is undergoing examination, right? So the change in international human rights laws could be um, instrumental to the active efforts of jumpstarting global attention and ergo more funding for educational and sexual health related programs on an international scale. So there's a domino effect, right? Of course, it's like with that, with more global attention, um, 
would come more funding and then more support on an international level. Right. And you mentioned a few questions back. You used the case of South Africa and Ireland in your paper. Can you talk a little bit about the case studies that you used, why and how they compare? Yeah, uh, so I, I compared Irish to South African society and how sexuality and reproductive rights are situated um, in the overall effort to place individuals with intellectual disabilities according to their intellectual abilities. Um, to afford whatever amount of freedoms that governing bodies would see fit according to their grasp of autonomy and societal value of marginalized individuals and groups. Um, so Folly in Ireland like interviews uh, mothers of people with, with Down syndrome uh, living at home, ultimately to discover the relationship of control based on needs principles um, existing and being practiced in Irish culture and society. The mother's attitudes on what is acceptable in a relationship are reflected on their charges and contained within the sexual and marriage clauses present in Irish laws. So one of those laws is that it is prohibited for someone with an intellectual disability to engage in sexual activity unless they are married. But since 2017, the, criminal, the criminality of this law uh, has been dropped somewhat to avoid non-consensual relations Uh, between people with and without an intellectual disability. So for the ultimate protection of those um, with intellectual disabilities from being sexually sexually harmed, right? So the issue, however, is that uh, there have not been any more specifications to these laws because there's a fear to overspecify on something that can vary wildly on a case from another. Uh, so it needs to be taken on a case-to-case -case basis, right? But parents of these individuals internalize these laws, especially like um, with their, their own ideas on marriage. But reading Folly's work, I realized the complexity um, of trying to reformulate laws on sexual rights for intellectually disabled individuals and the difficulty of navigating also the line that divides neglect and freedom. So the ideology of marriage as a safe union is however instilled in traditional European laws Uh, limiting sexual expression, right? So this was something that I found to be problematic, uh, especially in light of how difficult it is for two intellectually disabled people to get married in, in the first place in Ireland. Um, it does not offer many solutions for these people to have um, to have romantic relationships, you know, because there is this fear of of being punished if if their sexuality is expressed without without the means to get married. In Cajonde and Alt's work, on the other hand, I used a more constructivist approach um, as opposed to Folly's Foucauldian method to discover um, economic and need-based factors that largely determine how South African family caregivers consider the sexuality of young adults with intellectual disabilities. So Cajonde and Alt state that in most cases, lifelong care and support will be the family's responsibility with varying degrees of government government and other forms of funded support. Uh, so this trend is most common in low to middle income countries where formal out of home living options are either non-existent or minimal. Uh, so they reveal that most research done on the sexuality of intellectually disabled individuals within the context of South Africa uh, considers poverty as an important factor of a need to protect and prioritize the safety of the family members all of the family members, not just the individual with intellectual disability, over facilitating their access to sexual rights when they, they need to. Uh, 
so many families do not have access to resources uh, such as adequate funding or social assistance to allow room for the sexual expression of their relatives with intellectual disabilities. So the needs determined by the family caregivers are dependent on the family's economic and social needs. Uh, so this unification of needs within the familial like unit distinguishes it from Folly's work within the Irish context because also like the threat of poverty is more prevalent in South African families or the ones that were interviewed um, as seen in the study. So this threat of poverty in relation to the Irish sample, um, it posits a decision to put the caregiver's needs before supporting the sexual uh, rights of their family members, right? Uh, with intellectual disabilities. So one of those, one of the needs of the caregiver is, is also defined as a need to avoid extra burden of care, right? Uh, which I talk about in my paper in respect to unwanted pregnancy and in the event of a birth from what they consider to be an unfit couple, uh, the child is then considered a financial burden on the family. So sterilization is promoted by the family uh, to avoid the extra care it would take to raise the child. The, these authors also mention uh, that intellectually disabled relatives of those providing care are perceived as children themselves, right? Um, so the infantilization of these individuals also like perpetuates an idea that to allow them to explore their sexuality and have the right to a sexual education is, is not a priority. This places other forms of basic care and support in the forefront of, of care providers concern uh, when working with people with intellectual disabilities because they have fewer supportive like options due to a lack of social programs, again, like dedicated to the welfare of intellectually disabled people in South Africa. Uh, so this reality then forcefully places these families also in a situation of deciding between the family's safety or the sexual and reproductive freedom of their charges. Thank you. And I have just one last question in terms of uh, your essay. So in your essay, you say there's a call for emergence of social justice and non-consensual sterilization of intellectually disabled individuals. Do you, are you aware, do you know if, you know, if this is happening or do you see that happening in the near future? And if you can, I know it's a broad question, but you know, what would it take? You talked about the domino effect, but what would it take for you know, that movement to be able to start and take off? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, so non-consensual sterilization is, is illegal in Canada, uh, yet the qualifications for consent, uh, they do remain gray and cases are taken in on, uh, like I said, on an individual basis. Um, the court decision to like sterilize is restric restricted to, to therapeutic cases. So which means that the event of sterilization has to be done um, solely for the physical benefit of the individual. So in Canada, organized disability rights movements emerged in the late 19th century. Uh, the specific facet of disability rights that focuses on removing the legality of non-consensual sterilization uh, has yet to be thoroughly discussed. Um, the qualifications for consent still reflect a Western societal conception of a neurotypical grasp on agency, awareness on cognition that don't necessarily reflect the true capacity of all intellectually disabled individuals to freely choose what they do with their own bodies. Uh, so there is some progress I've witnessed in Montreal among smaller groups of activists, uh, like the ARC, the Friendship Circle, which is in Montreal, or the Special Needs Alliance, who support the initiative to reformulate these exact human rights laws um, on an international scale uh, for non-consensual sterilization, and also to increase like amount of sexual education programs in more uh, remote places in Quebec. So they, they do exist in Montreal, they're there. <laughs> 
Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's good to know. And uh, I have just sort of two other questions for you. They're more sort of just general questions, less so focus on your essay. Um, but can you talk to me a little bit about what aspects of your degree, so sociology, you see reflected in your current job? Yeah, uh, so at the group home, I've also learned to uh, like navigate, how to navigate and express um, critical concern um, when faced with like nonsensical bureaucratic practices <laughs> that sometimes like they sometimes do harm the individuals, right? That I'm, that I'm trying to help. Um, mm -hmm. So some of the paperwork uh, takes takes a really long time, so long sometimes that like whatever service in question like does not have uh, the time to be used properly. So what I've learned like through trial and error um, is kind of how to cut some corners, you know, I'm not proud of it, but it's to get things done instead of waiting like idly for for 20 or more people or or so to, to be in direct relation to the situation, who are not in direct relation to the situation. Um, and are only present as a measure of like financial protection, right? And these are all principles and and devices that I've learned to use uh, in my undergrad to be critical of these bureaucratic processes, right? So yeah, and I've also learned how to properly correspond with other professionals um, in my domain and to relay information in a more concise way. Um, the socially the sociology program at Concordia also has helped me has taught me ways to ensure that my actions um, and words are respectful, like to all that I, to all that I try to help. Uh, so my human relations abilities have definitely um, increased as a result um, of the culturally rich research I've done as an under undergraduate. So those are the main, um, the main aspects that have have, have um, increased or gotten a lot better since uh, since my beginning <laughs> in in Concordia. <laughs> That's really interesting because I think a lot of people who are either hesitant to come to the SASU, so and, uh, sociology and anthropology, either don't know what to do or like what skills they're going to gain. But this is like prime example of, you know, things that you can learn through through, through uh, SASU. And the last question I have for you is I heard word on the street, the Concordia Street, is that you're going to move to France and do a master's there. So I just wanted to talk to you about that. Are you excited? Um, you know, what's that like? Yeah, I'm. Um it's a mix of excitement and fear, for sure. It's a new chapter of my life, and I'll have the opportunity to learn a new language. I already know French, but on a on a professional basis, I want to 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 branch out in that way. And I didn't really have the choice <laughs> to go to France. My my partner, his visa is expiring, so we decided to, to take that leap together. And I'm I'm very excited to to start this new this new chapter of my life, especially the the, the programs that I've that I've seen in France. Um, I'm still in the process of choosing the exact program that I want to to start in in about a year from now because I will be taking a sabbatical. But they seem very interesting, and I'm not sure what's in store for me <laughs> at all. But yeah, it's it's looking good. So, well, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us, to discuss your paper and, you know, discuss this topic that I think many of us um, are unaware of and need to learn more of. And I, whatever lies ahead for you in France, it's going to be wonderful. I have no doubts that you're going to be successful. And yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. 
To read Ariel's or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's Facebook page or Instagram for more information. Stories from Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CJLO Radio Station. It was hosted by me, Olivia, and edited by Marie Figueroa. Our sound design is by Malte Leander and artwork by Ali Brown. You can check out our show on the CJLO Airways at cjlo.com or on their channel at 1690 AM every Wednesday at 4 PM. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and until next time.